This week on Geek Explained, part two of X May takes us back to the 90s. I'm joined by Josh from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel to discuss the top 10 episodes of X Men the Animated Series. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is part two of X May. This is the month long series where the month of May is dedicated to Marvel's Merry Mutants, the X Men. Part one featured the intro to X Men episode with our good brother Owen from the Owen Likes Comics YouTube channel, and we are keeping that YouTuber comic tube ball rolling with this week's episode uh, featuring the sultry, dulcet tone of Josh from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel. We're talking all things X-Men the Animated Series and counting down our top 10 episodes from that cartoon. We also have this week's comics countdown and you might notice that we don't have a weekly review for you this week. That is because starting this Friday, as we mentioned last week, we've got Invincible Fridays as part of the Geek Explain Book Club. I'll be joined by my good brother, Malcolm Russell Nelson, and returning to the podcast, Jacob Brown, as we go through my first time reading through the series, reading through the entire series of Invincible. It's going to be an awesome time. Make sure you join us for that Geek Explained Extra series. I cannot wait to share that with you. But before we get into today's episode, let's go ahead and check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Going to kick things off with miscellaneous news this week, one piece of video game news, and that is that Mass Effect Legendary Edition releases this week. It's time. I'm very excited. I'm a huge Mass Effect fan. I have been following the progress, all the releases, all the info that they've been drip feeding us since the game was announced last year i can't wait to pick this up all the changes that we've heard about make me really excited to replay this trilogy again and with the news that we are getting a, another entry in the mass effect series later on down the line this is the perfect time to jump on board, check out the all-new versions of these games with all of the DLC. I guess almost all of almost all of the DLC. Um, very excited about this. Super, super looking forward to jumping back into this world. Hopscotching over to film news. Three pieces of film news here. First off, 
for those of you like myself who are Dragon Ball fans, you will be very excited to know that Dragon Ball Super is getting another film. It will be dropping in 2022. Akira Toriyama, the man himself, made the announcement on Goku Day, basically saying that another film following up on Dragon Ball Super Broly uh, is going to be dropping next year. So no release date, no plot, no characters. We don't know what's going on with this. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to be dipping into the Moro arc or not, but they'll probably save that for another run of the actual like anime series. So this should be really interesting. Looking forward to seeing what they do with this. Uh, jumping over to DC now, it appears... From what we can tell, rumor is that they are committing with this new uh, Superman film. You know, we already know that J.J. Abrams is going to be producing. We do know that Ta-Nehisi Coates is going to be writing this new Superman film. And apparently, they are committing, you know, rumor has it, that they are committing to having not just an African-American director, but also a black Superman. Um, no news on, you know, what this story is going to entail whether this is going to be you know a you know african-american version of clark kent whether this is going to be calvin ellis whether this is going to be val zod who knows all of the rumors surrounding it seem to be going into the direction of making clark kent black which i wouldn't argue with i think it'd be a really interesting story but i do think that there are also, interesting avenues to go, especially with Calvin Ellis and Valzad on the board and not having any kind of adaptation for either of them. Um, but I'm just excited. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about the uh, potential names involved. It's it's really, really exciting. As a Superman fan, as a fan of you know what that character represents, I'm very excited to see where they go with this. And then last but not least, in film news, we got a brand new trailer for Venom. Um, there shall be carnage. Venom, uh, there will, there will have carnage done. Um, anyway, the 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 trailer looks interesting. Uh, it looks like they're really leaning into some of the more ridiculous stuff from the first Venom film. Um, the trailer opens up with Eddie and the Venom symbiote making breakfast, and it's. I don't know. I, I really don't want them to lean too heavily into the comedy. I think that's where um, Guardians 2 misstepped just a bit. Because in Guardians 1, you know, like, Drax was unintentionally funny. He was just very, like, straightforward, almost to the point of um, of being, like, a complete lunatic. Because of how, like, non—he uh, didn't get humor, he didn't get sarcasm. And then in Guardians 2, that film is— incredible um but one of the things i as a viewer was kind of put off by is that they just really leaned hard into drax just being a goofball which i don't know i i'm hoping that because the thing that i liked about venom and there wasn't a whole lot i liked about venom i'll be honest um the thing i did like is that all of this ridiculous stuff was happening with Eddie and with the Venom symbiote while everyone else kind of more or less played it straight, which made him stand out even more. But if it's all going to be like that, I don't know how much I'm looking forward to it. I will say Carnage looks 
fine. Uh, the Carnage looks pretty much exactly what you would expect. Woody Harrelson, you know, doesn't have his uh, his Annie wig anymore. Rest in peace to the uh, to the Annie wig. But I am still very interested in the prospect of Woody Harrelson as Cletus Cassidy. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Is that what it is? There's gonna be Carnage, Venom. There's gonna be Carnage. I'll get it. Um, it looks interesting. It looks interesting. Um, it pretty much looks like they're doubling down on all of the stuff that they did in the first film. And we will just have to wait and see how this film shakes out. Hopping over to TV news. We got four pieces of TV news here. First off. We got the big news that Loki, the next uh, Marvel Disney Plus show, is going to be bumping up just a little bit. We uh, we talked about a few episodes back that Loki was going to debut on June 11th. Now it has been bumped forward so that the first episode will be debuting on June 9th, and now Loki will be airing on Wednesdays. I can only assume that this is so that it doesn't... Uh, doesn't mess with the release or the uh, release days of the Bad Batch of Star Wars: The Bad Batch, which, as a side note, fantastic, uh, which is releasing on Fridays, and it's like a 16 episode season, so I'm sure they just don't want people, you know, div- they don't want to divide the audience as much as whatever that means. But it means that we're getting Loki early each week, so that's fun. I'm a I'm I'm still excited. I'm not as excited as I was for WandaVision and for Captain America and the Winter Soldier, but I am very interested in seeing what they do with Loki. Hopping over to the DC side of things, three pieces of DC news. First off, Batwoman. This one hurts a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, We got the... First look at Morgan Coan, who has been cast as Stephanie Brown in name only, it seems, because this this character looks nothing like Stephanie Brown. Um, I just don't know why, what DC Comics has against the Batgirls, against Cassandra Cain and Stephanie Brown when it comes to adapting them. They just they don't want to adapt them properly. I don't know what it is. Uh, I guess I'll have to wait to pass judgment until I actually see her in the show, but I don't have high hopes after this first look. She's she's a redhead. She's got like these weird like tattoos all over her body. Like I don't know. I don't I don't know. I don't want to make a snap judgment, but I just I don't have high hopes for this. Uh, what I do have high hopes for though is on the Flash. We got our first look at Bart. Allen got a first look at Impulse, and that costume looks mwah, chef's kiss. Looks fantastic. I think it's going to be great, and we got some set photos that show uh, Barry Allen partnered up with his kids, Nora and Bart. This looks really cool. I'm still a little weirded out by Bart being his son now, but I am willing to set that to the side because that suit looks incredible. Looks like they're going to be fighting off Godspeed some more, so very much looking forward to that. And the leaked photos of the costume did soften the blow a bit when we found out that Tom Cavanaugh and Carlos Valdez are leaving the show after season seven. Um... I, I think I kind of we all kind of knew this was coming eventually. You know, both of those actors, their characters have pretty much told all the stories there is to tell with them. But it still it sucks. It it sucks to see the family that you know you stuck with from season one. You know, slowly breaking up. 
but it is what it is. I'm sure that they have lots of awesome opportunities on the horizon, and hopefully uh, they go out with a bang. But the final piece of TV news we got was a casting announcement for the HBO Green Lantern series. We found out that our guy Gardner has been cast, and it is Finn Whitrock. Uh, Finn Whitrock has been on a bunch of stuff. The most notable, for me at least, is uh, American Horror Story, where he's played a slew of different characters, all of whom are on the spectrum of cocky asshole cocky assholes so that really uh that speaks to guy gardner uh we also got the uh little release that guy gardner's story is going to be taking place in the 80s which is really fun but finn whitrock was not the first person that i would have cast for this i've been i've talked about it before that i think alan richson would have played the perfect guy gardner especially with how he plays uh hank on titans but i i am I'm curious enough to see where they go with Finn Whitrock. He is a great actor, and I think that there's a lot of depth for him, both as an actor and in the character of Guy Gardner. So I am I'm curious enough to see where this goes. Looking forward to it still for sure. We're going to round up the news segment with comics news. One piece of comic book news, but it's a pretty big piece of comic book news, and that is that we now know what the uh, trial is going to be during the Reign of X. We talked about weeks ago how they released the roadmap for the Reign of X and that following the Hellfire Gala, there would be three books released, one being the X-Men being released with uh, Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larraz helming the book. One book would be some kind of trial. We could make out the words the trial, but we didn't know what it was. And that was going to be uh, handled by, let me pull up the creative team here. Give me one second. Um, da, 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 da. Written by Leah Williams with art by Lucas Werneck. And then we saw that the uh, third book was going to be uh, penned by uh, Pepe Lara or uh, penned by Jonathan Hickman with art by who knows it's classified we now know who the who is going on trial for this book and it is going to be magneto the book has been announced as the trial of magneto it's going to be dropping on august 18th one week after my birthday and apparently something's going down at the hellfire gala i was i've been getting the feeling the more that they've been hyping it up is this big like you know big old Marvel Universe event that something bad was going to happen. You just, you you had to get that feeling. And apparently someone is getting murdered and Magneto is being put on trial for it. So I am very excited about this. I don't know what is going on. They're not releasing who gets murdered, of course, because that would be a huge spoiler. But it does seem that the Hellfire Gala is going to end in tragedy and Magneto is going to be at the heart of it. The, uh, let's see here, the release for the book reads as thus. Uh, let's see here. Where are you? The, okay, so the official solicitation reads as thus. When has Magneto ever allowed bureaucracy to get him between himself and what's just? In the island paradise of Krakoa, safe haven and home for mutants, Magneto's hard-fought greatest desire of seeing his people at peace and thriving has finally been achieved. But Magneto's loyalty extends only as far as it is first earned. So after the Hellfire Gala, when he learns that even a paradise could still be filled with lies, the trial of Magneto will 
will begin. And it's being report or rumored, I guess, more or less, that a mutant has been murdered, uh, which I think is weird with all the, you know, resurrection protocols. When I was, okay, so I'm just going to give my you know, batshit theories here. Um, we got some teases from pages here. Where there's apparently a very tense exchange between Reed and Xavier. I figured a human, because we do know that Avengers, Fantastic Four, all different manner of uh, characters are going to be appearing at the Hellfire Gala, that one of them is, one of the guests is going to be murdered. And I thought it would have been a big swing to murder Reed Richards. But... It is being rumored that it is going to be a mutant, and we don't know which mutant it is. The cover that they've released, which is gorgeous, art by uh, Valerio Shidi, um, looks fantastic. And the chalk outline is in the shape of someone running, so it's potentially Quicksilver. It's potentially um, someone who runs real, real fast, but with all the... Um, all the uh, uh, storylines that have been going on between the X books, uh, there's been a big push with Storm saying goodbye to the Marauders. I have the sinking feeling that they're going to kill Storm. And I don't know. I have no basis for this. I have no like insider knowledge or anything. But if you want something that would rock Krakoa and really like mess up the books, I... I think, uh, you know, Aurora getting axed would do it. But they are keeping uh, they are keeping the identity of the murdered mutant close to the vest. We will just have to see what happens. I am nervous, I am excited, and I can't wait to kick off the Hellfire Gala. But that is going to wrap up the news segment this week. And speaking of the X-Men, we're going to roll right on to... Part two of X May. Josh from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel swung by to have a discussion on the top ten episodes of X Men the Animated Series. Welcome to part two of X-May. This is the month-long series devoted to Marvel's Merry Mutants. And this week's episode is very special because we're going to be talking about something that I think even if you aren't a hardcore X-Men fan, you have some knowledge of this. And that's, of course, the animated series. X-Men the animated series was a huge part of the 90s, huge part of my childhood. And this week's episode is talking about the top 10 episodes of X-Men the Animated Series. And when we're talking about 90s Marvel cartoons, when we're talking about the X-Men, when we're talking about X-Men the Animated Series in particular, I wanted to bring on an expert in the field. So joining me for this episode is comic tuber and sexy vampire himself, Joshua Sutton from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel. Josh, how are you, man? Oh, I'm great very very thankful to be here um and to be considered an expert yeah i'd good great pun <laughs> you know i've i've decided that <clears throat> i'm gonna try and uh squeeze in as many x puns throughout this month as possible so that like when may is wrapped up it'll give you enough to get you until the next x may 
so that you kind of you're you can tell me to stop making those puns for the rest of the year until we get to the next one but basically what this episode is about and one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you onto this is because you are such a huge X-Men fan and you're such a huge X-Men the Animated Series fan. So uh, I asked Owen about this and I want to ask you about this as well. Uh, what was your introduction to the X-Men? How did you get introduced to this, the strangest heroes of all? Well, conveniently, it was X-Men the Animated Series. So Topical. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Uh, yeah that was the you know my first introduction and then there was the the toy biz toys at the time yes i picked up a lot of those uh and then uh and then kind of reprint comics as well there was in in the uk the a company called panini would reprint a lot of the u.s comics and you generally get kind of older stuff so um actually you know i kind of my channel focuses on a lot of 90s comics and the reason for that even though i was i was alive in the 90s but not you know for the early 90s i was not of reading ability <laughs> uh, but i read a lot of those early 90s comics through reprints so that that era that jim lee era and the liefeld x-force era is very much in my wheelhouse yeah the 90s were kind of this x-men renaissance of like all of these great stories were happening and some also like some not great stories are happening, but like the popularity of the X-Men as a whole was at an all time high. And really, I don't think we've gotten to that point like since then, like we've had really good periods of like X-Men media and X-Men comics, but the nineties is kind of like this special, um, lightning in a bottle time where the X-Men were just like on the tip of the tongue for like literally everybody and a huge part of that was the was x-men the animated series now we are going to be talking about the top 10 episodes for the series i am just going to put this out there before we get into this discussion there will be spoilers if you haven't seen the show before um take your time watch watch the show it's excellent uh i didn't even mean to do that one but it's a fantastic look into X-Men the just in general and it's a great entry point for a lot of people who are trying to get into the X-Men especially if you're like a younger listener if you're a younger viewer and you're really wanting to get into the mythos X-Men the animated series is kind of this comprehensive doorway into kind of the larger ideas of the X-Men so Josh has five episodes. I have five episodes. We're going to hopscotch back and forth and talk about them and just kind of talk about why we love them. So I'm going to kick things off here. We're going to get this underway. My first uh, first episode that I want to talk about is an episode from season five. It is episode number three. And I'm just going to go off of the episode listings on Disney Plus because most people that is how they're going to be able to watch this show so um, if you go onto the Disney Plus app I want to make this very clear we are not sponsored by Disney Plus but we could totally be sponsored by Disney Plus <laughs> but if you do go on there you go on X-Men the Animated Series the series page you look up 
these specific season and episode numbers, that's where you'll find them. So uh, season five, episode number three, entitled Old Soldiers. Now this aired originally on February 22nd of 1997, and this is the Captain America episode. If you know me, if you know who I am, I don't think this is a huge surprise that this is on the list because... It's Captain America, man. Like, this was during a really interesting time for X-Men the Animated Series because the show was kind of wrapping up. And so you saw a lot of, like, animation changes, a lot of, like, production quality changes. But this is one of those episodes that still really sticks out to me as a viewer and as someone who... When I was introduced to Captain America, it was through cartoons like this and Spider-Man the Animated Series and the Marvel vs. Capcom series. And I remember just being enamored with the idea of Steve Rogers and the idea that he would team up with someone like Wolverine, who is this rough and tumble, like, takes orders from nobody, doesn't work well with others, always fascinated me. And that's why some of my favorite Wolverine comics are the ones that deal with him, you know, kind of going through his life throughout history and we get to see in this episode Wolverine is dealing with a vendetta he's bitter about the scientist who as far as he understands defected to the Nazi side and the entire episode well not the entire episode but the majority of the episode is told in flashback where Wolverine is going through occupied France, and he teams up with Captain America to try and liberate this French scientist who has been taken hostage by the Red Skull. And so we get a lot of the kind of mainstay Captain America stuff that's involved in this. You know, you get the Red Skull, you get these uh, Nazi robots, you get World War II, like all of that's there, but you also throw in uh, Wolverine, who is pre-Weapon X, so he just has a really long healing factor. And this was also, I I have to, I would have to check the dates on this, but I don't know if this was prior to, it had to be. It had to be, like, around the same time as we found out about Wolverine's Bone Claws, because in this iteration, he doesn't have claws until you know or this version of the character he doesn't have claws until the weapon x program so he gets these like fun little like i don't even know how you describe them these fun like little ninja claws that he wears like uh like brass knuckles and so you get to see him kind of out of his element uh him and cap are fighting against the uh nazi regime in occupied france and you get to see this you get to see the uh, respect that Wolverine has for Cap, and you get to see how well the two of them work together. And by the end of the episode, you know, it's revealed that the scientist didn't defect. It's revealed that, you know, he was undercover for the Allies, and we get this nice resolution for this thing that has probably haunted Logan for decades. And so it's just a great episode that I really enjoy, and I always look forward to... Uh, to rewatching, so that is my first episode for this list. Yeah, and it's a great choice. The um, I think we're going to get into this more as we get through some of the other episodes. But one of the things that this show is really celebrated for is its serialized storytelling and its long, sprawling, you know, multi-episode arcs and things like that. 
but occasionally it would pull a one and done out like old soldiers and it would just be really impressive really well constructed and um and and that's definitely one of them i think you're correct it's um pre the paul jenkins origin uh comic i think is where we find out about his bone claws and things like that is that right yeah, I, I think cause, <laughs> but cause yeah, I it's, it was before then. So obviously, uh, we didn't have like a concrete origin for for Logan at that point. And what are the chances that he would have uh, strap-on claws that would <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> later become part of his physiology? Oh, what it's, a coincidence! <laughs> what a what a crazy random happenstance. <laughs> so, Josh, what is the first episode on your list? Sure. Yeah, um, my first one, kind of similar, really, in that it's a one and done, is Nightcrawler. Uh, yes, you. I think you have the the series uh, and episode number. I don't have a note of those. I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going off titles. I believe that's episode number f- or uh, season four, and I want to say it's pretty early on. Let me pull this up here. I've got the Disney Plus app once again, not sponsored, but could totally be sponsored. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> season four, episode one, kicking things off for that season. Yeah, uh, what's well, interesting? The I watched these for the first. I didn't watch these for the first time. I've seen them hundreds of times, but I watched them for the first time last year in the in story order, uh, oh. which is the order that they were intended to go out in. But certain episodes were delayed um, as far as into later seasons because of production issues with animation ha- having to be redone and and um, and lines having to be picked up and things like that. Um, so it's it's an interesting uh, because you know without spoiling later inclusions on the list, but there are events that happen and then characters show up and you think, wait, aren't you supposed to be dead? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you watch it in broadcast order, which is the order that it's on Disney Plus. So it's an interesting exercise for anyone out there who is familiar with the show who hasn't watched it in story order. Um, a list of that is available online, and it's it's really interesting to see how it was intended to to go out. Although it can be jarring seeing different um, animation styles back to back. Oh, for sure. But anyway, I digress. Nightcrawler, uh, yeah, is an introduction to, I would say, a a cult classic uh, X-Men team member. He's kind of the thinking man's favorite X-Men member. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my... I've picked this uh, partly because it has a really atmospheric, spooky opening, and as the internet's resident sexy vampire, it's uh, <laughs> I like I like the spookiness of it. Um, but it's just a really good character introduction, and it it really uh, demonstrates the show's strength, which is its maturity and its ability to deal with uh, you know mature themes sensitively and in this case it's about faith and it's about nightcrawler's uh, religion and uh and 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 also the flip side of that is wolverine's crisis of faith and how he is not religious because he sees the ways the ways that mutants have been persecuted and um yeah it's it's a really interesting dynamic between those two arguments because there are there's validity to both sides and ultimately they have to kind of compromise and it's just handled really really maturely and sensitively in a way that i don't think any kids tv show has really done before or since um and i i personally i'm not a religious person but i really appreciate uh how (laughs) at at times you know this is the kind of thing i i can see them playing in in like sunday school in the 90s to be Mm -hmm. like see (laughs) see your favorite superheroes are christians um but it's in general i don't think it's too heavy-handed and um and i think it's just just a really good example of what the show was doing when it was at its best which is just not talking down to kids handling you know these great big existential uh 
kind of topics and handling them with care. So yeah, a great episode and spooky. So I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And as someone who did spend much of his childhood going to Sunday school, I can attest that this was the one and only episode of X-Men the Animated Series that other people um, in that community were familiar with. And it's it's fascinating to me because just like you said, like it's so honest and earnest in a way that I don't think a lot of people... Um, would see in a lot of uh, uh, modern animation because there's a certain amount of like, just like you said, talking down to kids in animation sometimes. And this handled like very real and really what the show did as a whole, like handled some really real and relevant uh, topics and things that not your average kid wouldn't normally be aware of and that's something that the show did so well and nightcrawler in you know specifically did a great job in getting the uh the emotion between two people like kurt and logan who are just so different and finding common ground between the two of them it's a fantastic episode for sure yeah absolutely and and um (laughs) my favorite part about it is is it has this like really atmospheric uh opening which is kind of like very Universal Monsters style, very gothic, yes. this like German church. And it, it almost reminds me of the Spawn cartoon as well because you see Nightcrawler, but his, his yellow eyes are glowing out of this dark mm-hmm. silhouette and you have it and this angry mob are marching through the town and then it smash cuts to Gambit and Rogue and Wolverine <laughs> in a in a ski lodge yeah. in, in the most 90s ski suits you've ever seen. And just the... the, the, the the artistry in that um, that cut is incredible, <laughs> and, and and what a hodgepodge of a group that is! Like of all the people that would get together for a ski trip, like Gambit, Rogue, and Logan together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's it's honestly like it's one of those episodes that you find yourself that I distinctly remember anytime I think about the X Men the animated series, and another episode that I want to that I kind of always come back to when I'm thinking of the series itself is uh, Till Death Do Us Part. Specifically for this list, it's part one. Uh, This was season two, episode one, and aired originally on October 23rd, 1993. I was just a a wee bairn at that point. And I love this episode. Um, This is the opener to season two, and I, I think for like as a whole and i'll get into it in in an episode later on in my list um they had a lot to prove after how well done the first season of the show was and starting the episode off with wolverine fighting in the danger room against cyclops while he's in a tux essentially like fighting from the viewer's perspective over Gene is such an interesting and like, whoa, what the hell kind of start to the episode. Uh, You come to find out that uh, Wolverine is just fighting against like all of these uh, danger room drones that are like holographically using Cyclops's form. At one point there's like a Cyclops Sentinel that Wolverine fights. It is bonkers and it's wild, but the episode kind of kicks off with uh, the wedding of Gene Gray and Scott Summers and sets them off to the side for the rest of the episode. They kind of come more 
into the into focus in the second part but this first episode does a great job in setting up that yeah you know the x-men kind of at least for now defeated the sentinels but that doesn't fix their problems that doesn't make the world all of a sudden look at them as heroes you know we get an introduction to uh great and creed and the quote-unquote friends of humanity we get the return of Morph here in a more villainous role the first time that, I believe the first time that he's seen since the first episode of the series where he's seemingly killed. And we see that he's essentially on this vengeance quest to get revenge on the X-Men who left him behind. He's like manipulating people throughout the episode. It's very cool um, in kind of this dark twisted kind of way where you're like, oh yeah, I'm deceiving my friends and all hating each other. Um, Jubilee gets captured by the Friends of Humanity. Uh, Beast gets framed for attacking people. It's just a fantastic episode that ends on this amazing cliffhanger where basically everything is going wrong and it's like oh yeah by the way gene and scott are still about to be attacked by mr sinister so it's just a great way to start off uh the season it's one of i think the best openers to any of the seasons in the show and it does so much to kind of refocus the audience and let them know like hey like the world is bigger than these giant robots who are trying to kill your heroes like there are again speaking to uh josh's first pick in nightcrawler like there are wider things going on you know uh prejudice and all of this stuff is still there and they still very much have to deal with that in their day-to-day so that is my uh that's my second pick for this list yeah and um just to give a bit of a peek behind the curtain, but we both had this one on our um, on our list because it's such a good <laughs> episode. It really takes what's great about the first series and and just kicks it up to eleven. The like the the animation is better. It seems like just a tighter, bigger budget show because For of the sure. success of the first one. And the 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 storylines become more ambitious in the second season. And uh, and yeah, and I really love the friends. Of, oh, <laughs> I don't love the Friends of Humanity. But I love their inclusion in this because it really cuts to the core of the kind of the social commentary that yes. the that the X Men's all about. And um, there's the great moment with uh, Xavier and Storm. They kind of give a little bit of a pep talk to the other X Men, and uh, they talk about you know how unhappy people in our society use. Uh, people who are different from them as scapegoats to explain the problems in their lives and and how this uh, I think Storm says it's like a it's an evil in men's hearts that must be fought and yeah. things like that and it's just so powerful it's it really is like it's so direct in its messaging and I think you could show people this in 2020 and uh, and it's still so relevant and I think people could afford to to watch it really yeah absolutely agree it's it's one of those things that the show does so well where it's like, yeah, we're going to give you this fun punch em up for 20 minutes, but we're also going to tell you about some real world problems that you are going to have to get used to and address at some point in your life. So it's the show's great. The show's great. If, if this episode does, tells you one thing, it's that the show is great and you should watch it. <laughs> so, Josh, what is your what is your second pick? Okay, my second pick, I'm going to jump all the way to the end now. Oh, <laughs> Very go. unconventional, but we're going to jump to the uh, the series finale. So that's uh, season five, episode whatever, I don't know, but it's the last episode, graduation day. <laughs> um, so yeah, th- this, the last season was uh, definitely is an interesting season. <laughs> I think, as you said, with old soldiers uh, from the last season, 
the uh, Saban decided to, who were the producers of the show, they decided to produce the series in-house uh, for budget reasons, and they also changed animation from, um, oh, I forget the name of the original, I think they were Korean uh studio I, that could be completely wrong but they changed to um, a studio in the philippines i think and the the art style just changes completely um and it's not bad in fact i actually think it brings it more in line with maybe some of the other uh, marvel animated series because i think it was the same studio that produced the fantastic four animated series um around the same time but anyway it's, it it feels like a different show the tone of it changes it's not as dark it's not as atmospheric and they do some really interesting things with the story there are a lot of kind of elseworld stories and just it it feels incongruous to the rest of the series but they absolutely stuck the landing with the the last episode and to take uh you know all of these episodes all of these seasons of um of the of the show and of the of this storytelling and to really nail the landing and 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 to again cut to the core of what the show was all about is really really impressive um i'm trying to think i mean the the main thing that my main takeaway from this is that i'll give a bit of a synopsis so um xavier is on uh is on his deathbed and the the only person who can help him as they find out is magneto and um it's because magneto his um his powers of magnetism can amplify uh, Charles's telepathic uh, electromagnetic brainwaves and carry a message across space to Lalandra of the Shi'ar Empire to um, for her to come and use the Shi'ar technology to save Charles's life. Uh, so <laughs> that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. Um, but um, yeah, the the crux of the episode is that. The X-Men go to Genosha to find Magneto, and he, after all this time, he's finally got a devoted enough army of mutants who have risen up, and he's about to achieve his goal of supremacy over the humans, and they tell him that that, um, Charles is on his deathbed. And he realizes that his oldest friend and his and his greatest uh, rival, the only person who can match him intellectually, he's the only person who can help him by using his powers of magnetism. So he lets go of his dreams of conquering humanity, and he goes with the X Men to save Charles's life. And what's really powerful about this episode is a speech that Charles gives on his deathbed to all of the X Men, and you know it. He he addresses each member individually and and tells him that they're proud of them, what they've achieved, and it calls back to to the kind of character development that we've seen uh, over the five seasons. And it's just incredible. It 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 could bring me to tears just thinking about it. <laughs> so it, it's a really powerful episode, and it's obviously I feel like you have to have watched the show up to that point. I wouldn't recommend it as a starting point for a new fan, but if you've watched all five seasons and you get to this, it's just it's one hell of a gut punch, and it's really impressive that they could they could wrap it up and really bring everything to such an amazing conclusion. Yeah, it's it's one of those episodes that. When you watch animated series, a lot of them have incredible, just amazing journeys, but many series don't have, like, a legit ending. Like, there aren't very many animated series that have this incredible, like, denouement that, like, really wraps everything up in a perfect bow, and this is one of those few shows that does. Graduation Day is this incredible just amazing ending to a story while also still saying like hey you know they these characters go off they the adventures continue but for here for this you know window that we're looking into 
this is where things wrap up and you know calling back to all of these different moments you know the friendship between charles and magneto what when you reference like the uh the choice that magneto makes because at this point like he's got basically like an army he's got that whole like x-men the last stand like people in the forest looking up to him and being like lead us and he is like ready to declare war but because his friend needs him like he abandons it and it's what an incredible journey for that character to be able to make that choice and when charles is like calling back to all of these like he's giving everyone their little like their snippets of like hey you did good it's like he said it is a just oh it's a gut punch and it is a tearjerker throughout like i still well up when he says to cyclops you know like a a better son you know a father could never ask for like i just oh it it still gets me man it really really does um it's a great episode it absolutely is and calling back to uh to fathers and sons and specifically with cyclops my next uh episode is orphans end this is season three episode 15 uh, originally aired on november 26th of 1994 and for my last you know my last three picks for my list they're true to character they're going to be somewhat cyclops focused so just bear with me if you are not a cyclops fan um i am and it's my podcast so uh but basically this episode really kind of pulls all of the strands that we've been you know tugging at here and there throughout the series because cyclops is constantly you know searching for some kind of uh guidance some kind of father figure because him and his brother alex who makes a one-off appearance and is never mentioned or spoken about again um grew up without their father without their parents because their dad and their mom's plane was shot down by some otherworldly force and during the course of season three he runs into a group of uh space pirates called the star jammers and one person in particular named corsair who as it is revealed is Cyclops' father. And in this episode, uh, Corsair is on the run from the Shi'ar, and he crash lands on Earth, and this is where the big revelation is made that the two of them are related. And it's just an incredibly um, character-driven drama episode for all of the wacky space nonsense that's going on around it. Um, It's a fantastic episode about fathers and sons, about reconnecting, and it's about being able to forgive someone um corsair is not a good dude we'll just put that out there he's you know he's a scoundrel he is a space pirate but when it kind of all wraps up and everything's you know they're about to jet back off into the sky and out of scott's life again you know scott's like well maybe you could stay for a little bit and we could like get to know each other better and Corsair's like yeah let's do that and they spend the entire episode kind of in conflict with each other so that choice is really good and it's just a really feel-good episode for 
you know, people who may have complicated feelings with their father or may have, you know, these feelings of bitterness because Scott spends most of this episode being very bitter and very angry and rightfully so. But I, I just think it's a great character driven episode that kind of gets to the core of the character and to the core of what that character stands for. So that's, that's my third pick. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to be a Cyclops fan, right? It is. And, uh... <laughs> it, it is. I didn't know that, you know, that would be the thing that I am persecuted for the most. But here we are. <laughs> and but, um, this this episode in twenty minutes does a much better job of, yeah, as you say, getting to the core of of Cyclops than a lot of well than any of the movies, let's say, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and a lot of comics as well, and you know. Cyclops is often presented as this like stuffy uh, kind of you know teacher's pet kind of thing, and that certainly is a, a component of his character. But but this kind of gives you so much more about him, and it's really good. I'd actually say that if there are any kind of uh, say fans who are you know interested in MCU movies and they're going back and discovering this stuff, then um, if you're a fan of the dynamic between Peter Quill and Ego in Guardians uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. This, you know, is a similar kind of uh, uh, dynamic between Cyclops and Corsair. So I think that's really interesting. It's always interesting, uh, you know, (laughs) we're all all, uh, people with daddy issues, right? So uh, (laughs) it's always good to see that reflected in our media. (laughs) (laughs) So Josh, what is your third pick? Yeah, so my next one, uh, One Man's Worth Part 1 is the episode title. Again, I'm going to have to defer to you, Eric, on uh, season and episode number i'm so sorry yes. i should have been more no, organized that, no that's okay i i had the disney plus app up for some reason again we're not sponsored but we could totally be sponsored but um <laughs> so one man's worth is uh two-parter episodes three and four of season four yeah so i've specifically picked part one but as with a lot of the multi-part episodes obviously you want to be watching the whole uh, story to get the whole thing part one is a really exciting uh, premise it sets up this uh, time travel kind of romp and um, in putting together uh, my half of the list i was torn between this and another time travel story which is days of future past of course and uh, and you know ultimately i could have gone either way but there are a few reasons i've picked this one and uh, yeah it this again as i was saying earlier about the uh how the show never taught down to kids well this is about as convoluted a plot as you could get and it never tries to dumb it down you really have to be on your toes to follow what's going on here um with all the the time travel the timey-wimey stuff and uh yeah uh it's um well okay let let me just say (laughs) one of the main reasons i really love this episode is because i totally ship uh i've never shipped a relationship in my life but i totally ship logan and storm as a couple and and in this alternate future uh logan and storm are married storm's got the the badass mohawk from the 80s comics and and logan's looking badass as well in kind of a black sleek stealth costume and uh, and yeah you get to see alternate history versions of all of the x-men and and as the episode transpires what we discover is that um it's kind of echoing days of future past but but making it more pertinent to the to the core x-men team is that in 1959 uh 
Charles Xavier was assassinated by uh, by people who'd been sent from the future to assassinate them, so that the X Men would never be formed. Um, and and so that happens. And then what happens is is Bishop uh, from his future has to travel back to prevent uh, Charles from being assassinated. And if if it sounds like I'm struggling to explain this, <laughs> it's because I'm struggling to conceptualize it in my brain without having uh, a written down plot plot synopsis in front of me. Uh, <laughs> but basically, it's a time travel thing. It's an alternate future, and as the title suggests, one man's worth. It's all about the value of Charles Xavier to the formation of the X Men and ultimately the the progression of mutant and human relationships uh, relations. Um, so, but. For me, <laughs> the, the the main reason it's on the list is just because it's so great to see alternate versions of these heroes and to see uh, Storm and Logan, and it's really emotional actually. The um, there's almost like a, a Spider-Man One More Day moment where Wolverine has to make the decision to go back and go back in time, save Charles Charles Xavier, rewrite the future, and erase his and Storm's relationship. And he he says, you know, I can't do this. Uh, I don't want to lose you. And Storm says, you'd really sacrifice, uh, you know, humanity and and the mutant race for just for our just for one relationship. And and he said, and he says, you know, you're right. Ultimately, and he and he goes back and uh, prevents Xavier's assassination. And uh, uh, oh, and and also, there's a great moment um, again. Talking about the social commentary. In the back in the fifties, they go back and they they take Charles to a diner and they're trying to explain. It's very Back to the Future. They're in a fifties diner and they're trying to explain to Charles, you know, we've come from the future. This is happening. You need to understand. And he can't uh, get his head around it. But while they're in there, there is a disgruntled kind of employee at the um, at the diner is saying, you know, I, I can't believe these types are in here. And you know, I'm going to throw these these uh, these people out. And kind of you're thinking, oh, he's talking about them because they're mutants. But then but then it becomes uh, apparent that because it's in the 50s he's he's referring to bishop and storm uh, because they are people of color and and eventually he gets up and says you know you, you can't bring uh, these people in here and um and storm has a great line where she says uh something like uh, i think i have it written down somewhere she says oh, oh skin color prejudice that's so pathetic it's almost quaint and it and it really uh, it's it's <laughs> i mean it would be nice if um, if skin color prejudice was eradicated and was uh, quaint but it gives an interesting dynamic and you see you know the biggest problems that the x-men have to deal with is persecution because they're mutants so for storm and bishop to go into the 50s and be you know be prejudiced against because of the color of their skin it kind of ties in all those social commentary things and all those parallels and uh, uh, yeah, I've just kind of rambled about that episode, but <laughs> it's, it's quite a difficult one to explain without uh, watching it for yourself. So I definitely recommend going and checking it out. No, absolutely. And it's, <laughs> I don't think even if I had a full like beat for beat like synopsis on the episode that I could have explained it any better because you're right. This episode is bonkers. It's, it is one of those episodes where as a kid, like, I remember being completely lost throughout just because it, there's so much going on at one time. They fight the Avengers at some point in the first episode where 
you see like alt version of like cap and giant man and it's like what are they doing that there's there's a scarlet spider cameo like in legit like ben riley scarlet spider look and it's like what are you doing there they're never like referenced upon and the thing is i think they were trying to do because i believe this was the same year that uh, age of apocalypse came out and it has a very similar premise um but we do get to see this incredible love story between uh, Wolverine and the best version of Storm, which is Mohawk Storm. And it's, it is really about, like, them sacrificing themselves. There's even this, like, kind of creepy but also super touching, like, superimposed moment where the two of them from their alternate, like, lives are kind of looking down on the mainline uh, versions of the characters and it's a great episode about like how much Charles Xavier means to the show without making him the main character of the episode <laughs> so it's it's just a fantastic episode it's a fantastic pair of episodes that he- I would also if you were a fan of you know the recent stuff going on with Hickman and the threat of Sentinels and Nimrod and stuff this is very Nimrod focused as well yeah, I was going to say, if you're a fan of r- stupidly complicated X-Men stuff, the Age of Apocalypse <laughs> thing is, is great, because if, if you're a fan of those big sprawlers that just bend your mind in all sorts of different ways, this is definitely one. And it's interesting that it you know it, it really mirrors Age of Apocalypse in so many ways, but actually I think predates it, uh, as you said, it was the same year, but it predates the comic, I think. Um, so I wonder if they were privy to, to some of the stuff that was going on there. My understanding is that the, there wasn't a lot of uh, communication between the people at Fox and Saban and, and places like that producing these shows because at the time Marvel was in dire straits and they were coming up to declaring bankruptcy. Um, so I don't think there was a lot of communication there between. I think Marvel had their own problems going on. Uh, but it's it's interesting <laughs> if you're into x-men and it's most complicated then this is the way to go and yeah again just to echo uh the the thing about the relationship wolverine and storm makes so much sense to me and i'm oh, kind of amazed totally. that it's that it's not mainline canon and uh it's just it's it's handled so well it's it's as believable a relationship and the dynamic between them in this in this episode is as convincing as any of the more established relationships throughout the show like gene and cyclops or anything like that so yeah it's a great one yeah absolutely agree and they've had like little flings here and there but the fact that they aren't like long term like lovers in the comics is just it's baffling because like you said they are they do fit together so well but uh Speaking of love interests and love in general, my next pick here has a lot to do with that because uh, my fourth pick is the Dark Phoenix Saga Part 4 entitled The Fate of the Phoenix. This is uh, Season 3, Episode uh, 13. And uh, this aired in... Let's see here. uh, This aired February 25th of 1995. I might have that wrong. Either way, um, it's an old episode. But this was the kind of the big conclusion of the Dark Phoenix saga. We had had the Phoenix saga itself, which is a whole separate batch of episodes. And then we had the Dark Phoenix saga with like two like one-offs in between them. But just like Josh said with uh, One Man's Worth, having the entire story is fantastic but if i had to bottle it down to one episode it would be the conclusion for this one because i think it's just so strong um this is dealing with the 
kind of uh, climax of Jean Grey inhab- being inhabited by the Phoenix Force, the X-Men kind of dealing with all of that ridiculous nonsense with the Hellfire Club, which I I believe it's called the Circle Club or something in the... Uh, in the animated series? Yeah, it's the Inner Circle, I think. The Inner Circle, they, yeah. They couldn't call it. Broadcast standards and practices wouldn't accept the Hellfire Club. <laughs> which is which is ridiculous. Like, it, isn't it? Isn't that the name of a song in, like, uh, like Hunchback to Notre Dame? Like, I, I don't know. But, uh, but, yeah, this was a... I love this story. Like, as people, you know, mention all the time, the Dark Phoenix saga is this, you know multi-year big sprawling x-men event and it's looked at as one of these iconic um events for the x-men and iconic moments in their history and it's for good reason it's an amazing story that has all these twists and turns but a lot of people kind of look at it as like this huge like g gray going to the dark side and they don't talk about what for me as you know speaking for just myself is the most interesting part of it which is the conclusion which is the wrap-up of the shi'ar empire basically showing up and saying hey gene guess what you blew up a galaxy we've sentenced you to die and at the start of this episode like charles is basically invoke he's pulling his best uh, Tyrion Lannister and going trial by combat we're gonna we're just gonna you get your best guys I'm gonna get my best guys and we're gonna fight for you know Jean Grey's life and the majority of the episode is focused on this battle on the dark side of the moon where the X-Men fight the Imperial Guard and leading up to this it truly feels like they are going out there to die because everyone's just like you know we've got gambit and wolverine are training you know scott and gene have this incredible moment where they're just together for the last like for what they think might be the last time and meanwhile xavier's like pleading with lalandra like help me like you're friends with us we've helped you so much why are why are you doing this and she hits him with like i am a woman second but i am the empress first and like all of these really uh deep character moments that you think wouldn't fit in like just said like a 20 minute episode but this episode is jam-packed with character moments and it's also the majority of it is this battle between the x-men and the imperial guard and i maybe i have some weird like sadism thing but i love like losing situations like narratively i love watching heroes who are way outclassed still try and fight their way out of any given situation and let's be clear here in this episode like the imperial guard are like two to three steps above the x-men they are so far out of their weight class and watching them still fight so desperately to save their friend's life it's just it's so good and it ratchets up the tension throughout all the way up to this moment where Gene and Scott are kind of huddled in this, like, makeshift little uh, hidey hole, and Scott's just like, there is so much we haven't done. There is so much I want to say to you, I just, we don't have time, and you can, like, feel his heart breaking, and Gene's like, yeah, I know, but you know, your words, you know, are your words, your thoughts, and it, it's very like 90s writing but it still hits me like a truck when she's like your your thoughts like you are beautiful and the two of them you know 
grab each other's hands and like you're ready because they know they're basically going out there to get like to get demolished and they're like okay they hold their hands together the wall comes down and they just go out guns blazing against the imperial guard and it's this very much like um you know last stand at the alamo kind of situation where they are surrounded they're desperately fighting scott gets taken out and gene you know triggers the dark phoenix persona and in a in just this heartbreaking moment you know gene is like going crazy she has the opportunity to destroy everything again charles is like oh my god Lalandra was right this is a threat this is a problem and he's and one of my favorite moments of this episode is like you know xavier revives mentally all of the x-men and he tells scott specifically like we gotta destroy gene and scott's like no like i love her and storm's just like got it and she just starts throwing like lightning bolts at her um storm just goes straight to business no matter what uh but i really love the way that this wraps up because this does kind of deviate from the comics in this event where uh, Jean is seemingly killed by this, like, uh, laser beam from Lalandra's main ship, and then the Phoenix Force itself says, like, we can sacrifice, you know, someone's life force for hers. And we get that classic Scott and Logan kind of jockeying for position there, but then all of the X-Men kind of come together and take a piece of each of their lives from each other to revive Gene. So we do get a bit of a happy ending. So it's it's one of those stories that is just full of tension, lots of drama, and really good action, and one of the best episodes of the entire show. Yeah, the the... The, it's it's kind of amazing, really, as you said at the beginning, how it takes the the Phoenix. Well, so the both the Phoenix saga and the Dark Phoenix saga kind of are the overarching narratives of season two, and it's amazing how it takes all of those comics and all the the Claremont and Byrne classic X Men issues and really streamlines it for TV and and keeps all the essential elements intact, but it but it segments them up into twenty minute. Uh, slots that that all feel very distinct and all tell their own stories and that's a real art form and it's it's hugely impressive that it does that and manages to keep so much in the comics in a way that cough <coughs> the movies didn't <laughs> but because you know they've taken two cracks at dark phoenix now and, and neither have really hit the nail on the head uh, but this really does and i guess you could argue that the ending kind of pulls its punches and certainly i think chris claremont would say that the ending pulls its punches by not killing gene uh, right. But it, but it actually it sets the character up for later in the series. It kind of it, she's been because Catherine Disher uh, as Jean Grey d- pulls an absolutely amazing performance. Because up to this point, she's kind of yeah. been the prototypical kind of sixties female superhero team member, where she's kind of always in peril and she's doing. She's kind of known for lots of shrieking and moaning and moaning Scott's name and things like that. But here she pulls this incredible performance and it used to really freak me out as a kid. I had the Dark Phoenix Saga on a compilation tape. So these were episodes I used to watch over and over again. And uh, it's, it, it reminds me now as an adult of, um, of uh, Linda Blur in The Exorcist, the way oh, her, her voice yeah, totally. flips down. And, and it's really scary. You know, the, the sense of dread that she brings to that performance is incredible. And you kind of see the lasting impact that that has on Jean uh, in later episodes because she is more worldly she's more you know she's been through some uh 
<laughs> some stuff. Uh, almost swore then, but uh, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's been through some heavy stuff, let's say. And and you know, I know, as you said, you're a big Cyclops fan, and this uh, retains the Cyclops and Jean relationship that's at the at the core of uh, of the Dark Phoenix saga. And just yeah. to just to echo, sorry, one last thing, just to echo something that you said is that there is this incredible sense of mourning that that hangs over the entire team throughout this last episode this last part because it's like okay here's what's happened jean's jean's done this uh you know we've been through this stuff and we know what's going to happen we're going to lose our friend and, and they're awaiting trial and it's really incredible how it gets that feeling across if there are people who've you know maybe lost loved ones or you know things like that where they, they've had to await like something a final fate let's say and there is this like this dread that hangs in the air and and this episode does that so much and it just makes you feel once these big cosmic entities start getting involved with the Shi'ar empire and and you know the kree and the, the scrolls are, are part of it as well it's you you get this sense of powerlessness against these big cosmic threats that the x-men are all feeling it's like okay this is out of our hands now this is bigger than us this is this is on a cosmic level and all we can do is wait for the final verdict and it's really powerful stuff yeah, absolutely agree. And there's a certain amount of uh, that was very profound. Um, th- there's a certain <laughs> there's a certain amount of uh, real world kind of lessons that I th- I believe that a lot of like superhero media in general, but specifically stuff that's aimed at children, really has the opportunity to teach you lessons and to you know get you prepared for you know the stuff you're going to have to face later on in your life. And there's this moment in the episode where Scott is fully on board of like, Hey, we're, we're going to steal a spaceship and we're going to get out of here. And Gene is basically says like, no, I killed people. Like I need to own up to this regardless of, you know, who is in control or not. There needs to be justice for these people, regardless of like how I personally feel about it or whether I was or wasn't in control. And there's, there's this tragic element of it throughout the episode and like you said this feeling of dread where you know that there's really no right answer and that's such a complex and complicated adult situation to be in that the fact that it was in a cartoon aimed at children is just incredible and speaks to just how much this show really exemplifies the the great amount of responsibility and the great amount of guidance that characters like these and stories like these can have on impressionable young people yeah for sure and as you said you know there is definitely a healthy serving of melodrama <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, the, sure. the writing reminds me of um in in friends where joey gets a gig on uh, days of our lives it's 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 that level of soap opera but that's what the comics were they were you know this great space opera uh so it's it you know it's i'm here for it (laughs) oh for sure for sure so josh what is your fourth pick okay uh my this is going to be a contentious pick i think for fans of the series uh because i think some people would probably rank this much lower (laughs) but my, (laughs) my my pick and i will explain why is mojo vision so this is uh i actually know this one it's season two episode 11 i believe uh and to go from this is quite appropriate that we're going from melodrama and something that deals with life and death and these big cosmic things 
to Mojo Vision, which I think is a great breath of fresh air in season two because it's totally goofy. It's just the most madcap goofiness. And uh, so essentially, uh, for those not familiar, Mojo is this this great big uh, kind of almost gender fluid Jabba the Hutt with uh, with robotic legs. And um, so Mojo's an alien and exists in an alternate universe called the Mojoverse, where he is like a lambasting of TV executives. And he has Mojo Vision, which is his TV network, where he puts on uh, programming for interdimensional beings and, and and all sorts of aliens and his his ratings are falling with his uh, his kind of star is Longshot which is a character created in the comics by Anne Nascenti and um, Art Adams in a really great limited series from the 80s uh, which is actually very influential on later uh, X-Men artists like uh, you know Mark Silvestri, Liefeld uh, Jim Lee, people like that and um and that kind of bleeds into into this episode because this is like the most 90s designs all of the weapons there's a character called spiral in there who's like peak 90s design um but anyway i'm getting off track there so he kidnaps the the x-men to kind of boost his ratings with a new television show on his network and um, they're forced into uh kind of acting in quotes uh in these these like simulations of of uh you know, like action TV shows. Uh, but to them, it's not a simulation. To them, it's real. They're really fighting real enemies and they're kind of forced to do Mortal Kombat with these... Um, I'm just dropping that in because Mortal Kombat's just come out and it's on my brain. <laughs> but they're, they're forced into Mortal Kombat. Nice. Relevant. <laughs> yeah. They're forced into Mortal Kombat with these uh, simulated enemies and to kind of perform for this uh, trumped-up TV executive alien uh, and eventually they realize that it's a simulation and the, that Mojo won't let them be killed because there are ratings hit and that's how they're able to defeat them with the help of Longshot who wants his uh, his, his uh, starlight back. He wants to get back in Mojo's good books so he helps them escape. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the plot synopsis and again, it's just a one and done. It's really, really goofy. It's really fun. Uh, and it has a little bit of everything in it. It's it's got so much action, great action sequences. Because what it does by having these like um, simulated action scenarios is you get to see stuff that doesn't fit into the plot. So you get to see Rogue and Beast team up and they're taking on aliens. And then you see Wolverine versus a cameo from the Punisher, uh, who's kind of like a robot holograph of the Punisher. Uh, which I don't know how. I guess Mojo has observed the Punisher in in new york in the 616 universe or whatever and he's made a robot that looks like the punisher but it's a great way of bringing that character in who was obviously as hot as wolverine as a as an anti-hero in the 90s so you get to see wolverine and the punisher fight and you get it, it sets up all of these scenarios and you get other cameos from all sorts of alien creatures like scrolls and uh, i think i saw the awesome android was in there uh it's just a really really fun episode and it's kind of the x-men at the most bombastic and uh it kind of had interesting parallels to wandavision i thought because you know you have this like reality bending simulacrum or simulacrum however you say that word of of tv shows and uh and the way that that kind of affects people's mental state i don't know maybe i'm reaching there but <laughs> mojo vision wandavision there may be some parallels there i don't know yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm building up my conspiracy board for that right now, actually. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do want to touch back on something that you said, because I remember being absolutely terrified of Mojo when I was a kid, because it's 
he's this like terrifying looking creature but i forever from now until the end of time will refer to mojo as a gender fluid jabba the <laughs> i absolutely love that description yeah <laughs> It was. It's, it's it's so good. It's uh, I'd say it's quite accurate, <laughs> but it, it, yeah. he's a great character because he kind of stands in stark contrast to a lot of the 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 villains that the X Men face in this series who have these you know great grandiose uh, plans for humanity and mutants and that you know the there's all sorts of things that Mister Sinister wants to Mister Sinister is amazing in the animated series. He's one of my favorite villains. But you know he has his Agreed. he has his nefarious plans. Apocalypse has his time bending, reality bending plans. But Mojo is just a TV executive. He just wants the he just wants his ratings to soar, and he doesn't care who he has to trample over and who he has to torment to get to them. And uh, and he's just a really fun villain. You know some of the things he says. He's just la- he's just this larger than life character, and literally <laughs> and and metaphorically larger than life. And uh, <laughs> uh, I love he has like a an aide who who is kind of like I guess would be his personal assistant in the TV executive world, and uh, who follows him around with a clipboard. But he <laughs> he calls him all sorts of things. At one point he says um, uh, he says like yes certainly oh congealed one and things like that. There's just some great, great lines in this in this episode. It's just a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, and it's one of those things that, like you said, like there is a certain amount of very sincere seriousness. And like you mentioned it before, like it's it's like a soap opera. Like there are very serious themes and very serious tones in this show with some profound lessons and themes. And then you also get episodes like Mojo Vision, which is just like, you know, oh, our X-Men are cast as sitcom characters and like all these different like things that they have to fight out of because this guy is just trying to keep his network going. And it's it's one of the reasons that I really wish we had gotten like arcade in this show, because I think he would have been perfect in that kind of setup for an episode. But yeah, Mojo Vision is so much fun. Mojo Vision, just Mojo as a character is so fascinating in the way that he influences it, the way that Mojo is able to um, interact with people. All of Mojo's interactions are just like the most schlocky, like, t- you know, TV producer uh, conversations that like kind of make your skin crawl, but you also can't look away from the screen. It's a great episode. It's so much fun. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's one of my personal favorites. It's definitely a guilty pleasure episode, I'd say. <laughs> but I just thought actually it's... one of the one of the things they do is a pastiche of uh, I dream. I think it's just for the pun, but it's I dream of Genie, and it's yes. I dream of Jean uh, with Jean Grey. So you know, again, Wonder Vision, maybe I don't know. <laughs> maybe I th- I think I think we've broken it wide open here. I think uh, Kevin Feige and everybody's gonna have gonna be hot on the trail of this podcast once this episode drops well, and we break this case wide open. Let's say that Kevin Feige comes to me and says, "You have control of the X Men in the in the MCU." I would 100% do a one shot film with Mojo. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I, I think it's so different to anything we've seen from the from the X you know from what the general public know as the x-men and and i think <laughs> in a world where you know reality tv and and the kind of the cult of personality and you know how being a reality tv star can even get you as far as being president of the united states <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> not to get too topical but um uh this is it's relevant this this kind of thing is still relevant and there is still so much mileage in this concept so i would love to see this on the big screen personally 
Yeah, absolutely agree. And I'm kind of like, I'm kind of kicking myself for not like, for Marvel not taking WandaVision and it being revealed that it was Mojo the entire time. That would have been brilliant. Yeah, I mean, Agatha Harkness is great. It was Agatha all along, but imagine if it was Mojo all along. Oh, God. Just this, just this gender fluid job of the hut, <laughs> just going around. Um, but that brings us to our final picks for this episode. Uh, my final pick is, uh, I think, coincidentally enough, called the Final Decision. This is season one, episode thirteen, the conclusion of season one, and aired originally March twenty seventh of nineteen ninety three. This is the big finale for the show, or for the season, and it's really pulls everything together in a in the way that a great season finale should. It takes all of the threats from the season most importantly, the Sentinels, and really kind of kicks up their threat into high gear. The episode starts off with Magneto being absolutely bodied by a group of Sentinels after abducting Senator Kelly. And you know from there it's only going to get more dire and stressful. And so the the episode really is about Master Mold and the more or less the endgame of the Sentinels, where they're going to, like, start replacing, you know, various political leaders' brains with computers, um, turning, you know, public and um, uh, political uh, attention against mutants and really marching their way towards the kind of future that a Days of Future Past would uh, suggest. And... Not only that, not only does it have, like, all of these different plot threads throughout the series or throughout the season coming together into this incredible climax, but it also has some really good character moments. There's this amazing um, fight scene between Wolverine and the Sentinels in the tunnels, these, like, uh, old mine tunnels, which is... the way that they shoot it is basically like it's in darkness and it's only lit up when the uh, Sentinels like blast at Wolverine. Very unique cinematography for a kids show at the time, but it also brings together all of these various characters to uh, completely new places. Like Magneto is found and brought to the mansion over the course of the episode, and when all of the X-Men are basically like, okay, we gotta go shut this place down, we gotta go um, stop the Sentinels, Magneto's like, no, they destroyed me, and you guys are foolish for thinking that you can do this, and there's this great moment where they all, you know, the jet flies up, Magneto's standing on the steps of the mansion, they just left their greatest rival alone with whoever else is living in the mansion at the time and magneto like gives this like kind of soliloquy to himself where he's like you're all fools brave brave fools and the bravest are usually the first to die and there's this there's this acknowledgement of this respect that we've never really seen from magneto that kind of more or less kicks off this journey that he goes throughout goes on throughout the series that culminates in that choice in graduation day and also we get this great redemption moment for my boy cyclops who is working through all of the stuff like the first episode night of the sentinels um really puts into perspective the various uh team dynamics and Scott has been haunted by the choice to leave, you know, Beast and Morph behind in the first episode. And it's like 
in it's influenced all of the interactions he has with Wolverine throughout the season since then. And there's this great moment where, you know, half the team is topside fighting against some of the uh, Sentinel sentries and stuff like that, while the other team went in to try and get rid of Master Mold. And Cyclops is able to get some of the team members out, and he takes this moment where they're like, okay, we we gotta go. And he's like, no, I'm not leaving anyone behind. Not again. And you see him go back down, and you get all of these great character moments alongside the culmination of the threat of Master Mold and the Sentinels. It all kind of culminates with this incredibly just bonkers uh, moment where Magneto, who still like has his torso taped up, you know, creating this like electromagnetic force field on the Blackbird, which is being piloted by Charles Xavier to be flown into Master Mold. And I cannot do in words justice to how ridiculous the visual of it is, but it's also incredible watching these two uh, old friends and rivals, you know, come together to take on the biggest threat to mutant kind. And the episode wraps up kind of on this really nice note where they get Beast out of prison. Uh, Everyone's feeling really good. Scott proposes to Gene, and they make this really profound statement where the entire season up to this point has been like, you know, the threat of mutants, mutants being this terrible thing that the world is like not prepared for. And Gene says, you know, if we have children, they'll be mutants too. And there's this moment where it's like, yeah, that is the reality of being, you know, what the X-Men have always represented as minority groups of people who have been persecuted and prejudiced against. And Scott, looking into the sky, says, I wouldn't have it any other way. And there's, it's this beautiful and profound and, like, cathartic moment of them accepting who they are despite the world around them. And then it leaves off on this incredible cliffhanger because you find out that they are being monitored and watched by someone named Sinister. And it leads, it gives... The best hook into hey watch season two because it's gonna be amazing and i just i love everything about this episode yeah man absolutely i mean imagine that sinister tease as an end credits on a marvel movie and you you get you oh, get the sense man. of scope it's it's one of those real jaw drop to the floor moments and i just think this this episode in general is such a great conclusion to that first season and and it it pays off so delicately everything in that season and that first season you know things got more ambitious later on but that first season on its own is so well constructed it's so tightly paced and everything and it puts all these players in motion uh i may have mixed up two sayings there puts uh, puts wheels in motion and puts players on the board maybe uh, <laughs> we're, we're coming up with new sayings here. <laughs> it puts the players in motion let's say that um <laughs> and yeah it does all these things and it's and it's spinning all these plates to add another metaphor in there uh and it and it just pays them all off so well it's such a great conclusion to the to the arc of of that first season and like the the beast thing that's a great payoff uh the, the beast is hank mccoy is one of my definitely top three x-men for me and it's kind of bittersweet for me this first season that he's taken off the board in that first episode where he's imprisoned uh but but throughout the episode they throughout the season they you know go to see him and he says that he wants to 
he, you know, he wants to put his faith in the justice system, that justice will prevail, that he'll be found innocent and he'll be released. And, uh, you know, that may be naive <laughs> to trust the justice system, <laughs> but it speaks to his character and it speaks to his righteousness. And that in itself, that's such a great, subtle, you know, character building moment for Beast. And the payoff when they all go to meet him at the prison and they tell him he's released, that in itself, you know, that's a story arc completed and told. And, and this episode is full of those moments. It's a, Yeah, it's a really great one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to pinpoint like where a good place in the in the show would be to be like, you know what? I think we've done our job here. Um famously, I think or infamously, depending on how you look at it, the uh Beyond Good and Evil was supposed to be like the conclusion of the show, but it it there's something about the simplicity of this could also have been like a two to three part episode, but it's done so just like you said, timed so well and paced so succinctly that you get everything that you need to pay off all of the many plot threads in the first season and give us a fantastic conclusion. So it's it's a great episode and it's my top pick. Josh, what is your final pick for this episode? Okay, well, kind of going backwards from there, uh, and I believe saving the best to last is um, Night of the Sentinels Part 2, which I can tell yes. you, this is an easy one to remember, is Season 1, Episode 2. <laughs> and and obviously... Oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find that. That's... Oh, yikes. Obviously, uh, you know, this is the place to start you want to watch both parts you want to watch part one and part two but i've picked part two for this uh, for this list because this has the most iconic uh, moments it has some of the most memeable moments that i'll get to some of the most quotable lines and it's just a great great introduction to these characters for me it was an introduction to these characters completely but an introduction to these versions of these characters if you're already familiar with the x-men and uh, so I'll give you the kind of the synopsis for the f- the full Night of the Sentinels part one and part two. Is we're introduced to our POV character for the uh, for the for the series, and it's you know a classic X Men trope of having like a young teen mutant who you kind of follow. In the comics, it was Kitty Pride. Uh, in the in the first X Men movie, it was uh, Anna Paquin's Rogue, and here it's Jubilee. And uh, Jubilee was like. <laughs> the let's say she was the 90s kitty pride for me she was kitty pride uh because this was the pov character for me and uh i think some people find her annoying particularly older fans found her annoying at the time in in the series but i was just like yo this is a kid who gets to hang out with the x-men this is my entry into the x-men this is who i want to be um so yeah jubilee uh, she has mutant powers. She's a teenager living in the sub- suburbs. She's a, a mall rat, um, and she's hanging out at the mall. And it just so happens that the X Men are out on a, on a on a mall shopping away day, and uh, they're all out. And that's that's a great character moment in itself. And that's something that the comics used to do is is showing the team doing these mundane activities together. And so they're all out clothes shopping. They're having their banter, and um, and suddenly a sentinel crashes into the mall. And uh, these Sentinels, it's our introduction to the Sentinels. They're, they're programmed to identify mutants and uh, either capture or eliminate them. And uh, and it's detected Jubilee and it's come to eliminate Jubilee. Well, I think to capture Jubilee. Um, so the X-Men intervene. They try to save her. Uh, I won't go beat for beat through this synopsis, but basically Jubilee gets captured. The X-Men have to go to, uh, I guess, the Trask Industries uh, base to retrieve Jubilee. 
and uh, sadly not all of the X-Men make it out uh, unharmed, let's say. So we have the tragic death of Morph, and so this is our first memeable moment, is Wolverine screaming, Morph, Morph! And uh, and that's that's a great... <laughs> that's So Morph was a, is a character from the comics, but kind of completely different, and was reconfigured with a new look and new kind of powers to fit into this team. And you know the nicest way to put it is that morph was introduced as cannon fodder they needed someone to kill off in the first episode or the first two episodes uh to to give it some emotional impact and so that's that's the the purpose that morph serves in the first series at least because later morph comes back as we talked about and comes back super creepy and it's really interesting but yeah so morph dies uh beast gets arrested as i alluded to earlier and uh, and we see the the team kind of fall apart then and Wolverine resents Cyclops for making the call to leave them behind Cyclops has to grapple with the responsibility of a lead of being a leader and having to make those calls in in on the field uh Wolverine lashes out at Cyclops uh the memeable moment number 2 Wolverine comes down off the Blackbird jet and punches Cyclops in the stomach I'm sure you've seen that gif uh, it's one of the most iconic moments in the entire show uh, and then a few minutes later he uh, he claws off the uh, the top of Cyclops sports car and um, and says uh, what does he say tell Cyclops I've made him a convertible <laughs> <laughs> so there's just there are so many iconic lines in this episode and um, it's just yeah all this stuff gets wrapped up I won't spoil it go and watch this this is the place to start Night of the Sentinels part one part two Part two is the great conclusion, uh, you know, iconic lines. And it's such a perfect introduction. Like, it's such a masterful introduction. They couldn't have, have written it better to say, okay, here's Storm's character B. This is everything you need to know about Storm in just a couple of lines. Okay, here's Gambit. Here's everything you need to know about Gambit in a couple of lines. Here's how these. Here's the dynamic between these two characters. Here's the dynamic between these two characters. Here's the you know the relationship between Jean and Cyclops. Here's here's how Wolverine might you know there might be a love triangle there, and it just does it so succinctly and just it's it's incredible. <laughs> I'm really gushing about this episode because I really think it's a perfect piece of not just cartoon not just a kids tv show but a perfect piece of superhero storytelling a perfect piece of television because it balances all of these elements and if this was if this had been uh, a pilot you know this would have got picked up i I believe uh, because it's just it's so great and just on uh, while i remember to mention this i think the fact that they set up morph uh, and wolverine as being the closest friends uh, they're like they're they're the real inseparable uh, group, and it's it's a great dynamic because Morph is kind of cr- crass and goofy and and kind of like a Beavis and Butthead ca- type character, and Wolverine, grumpy old Wolverine, just finds him absolutely hilarious, and and Wolverine is so surly with everyone else on the team, but whatever Morph does, Wolverine's like, oh yeah, good good one, Morph, <laughs> and so when when Morph dies, it's Wolverine who really feels that, and it and it tells us so much about Wolverine's character and sets up Wolverine as the the character who's perpetually in grief, who's perpetually in pain um, for the rest of the series. It's, yeah, I could gush about this one episode for the entire podcast, I think, so I'll stop myself there. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's it's absolutely well-deserved. The episode is what started off the whole thing and if this was just like a ho-hum episode or if it was like, yeah, it's all right, like the five seasons that we got afterwards I don't think would have happened and the fact that 
they were able to squeeze in all of these character dynamics, these introductions, what they're about, who they are, you know, their relationships with each other alongside these, this almost heist situation where they have to go into this place and delete all these files. It's so well done, and the fact that it's only two episodes of a 90s cartoon, and it still is one of the best and most watchable episodes of the entire show, is a huge testament to how good the episode is. And I didn't even think of framing it that way, and the fact that you were saying, like, yeah, you know, Wolverine starts off the show and is perpetually in the state of mourning. It's like, oh my god, like, that speaks so much to great screenwriting, and it speaks to just great creative writing and character development in general, starting a character at a certain place to... um to basically maneuver them into where they're going to be for the rest of the show. It's a fantastic episode, and as a kind of one-two punch of Night of the Sentinels and Final Decision, I wouldn't recommend just watching them one after the other. But, like, the starting point of the Night of the Sentinels, all of the stuff that happens in my pick, in Final Decision, has little to no impact without all of the building blocks that Night of the Sentinels has. And if you're looking for just a great X-Men story, regardless of medium, Night of the Sentinels is a is one of the best that you could ask for. So as we're wrapping up here, do you have any final thoughts on the show as a whole? Any um any honorable mentions as well, if you have one or two? Ooh, good question. Um well, I think Days of Future Past, I think, is the most obvious snub. Um, yeah, agree. Uh, so I definitely check that one out. I would say, you know, if you are thinking of getting into the show and it's never been easier with Disney Plus, then I I would watch that first series because the, as you just alluded to, the, the everything that's set up in the in the first episode gets paid off in such a satisfying way in the final episode of the first series. And if you can, if you watch that and you're digging it, then keep going. But you know, <laughs> it's kind of perfection. In is it 22 episodes or 24? I think the first series. Um, uh, I I believe it's only 13. Oh really? Oh, like, is it, it is that short? Very wow. tightly paced. At least it is on Disney Plus. But like, it is very tightly paced. Yes, I think you're right. And and yeah, like looking at it now, I have to I have to give props to another episode that we didn't talk about, Slave Island is fantastic it's uh it's a genosha episode um deals with the ideas of like slavery and being persecuted and forced to do manual labor because you look different or you are you know of a different social class is a very heavy heavy episode for a kid's cartoon especially in this first season when they're trying to establish what the tone of the show is but yeah all of these at least on Disney Plus, uh, first season's thirteen episodes. Second season is thirteen episodes as well, and then the rest of them just kind of balloon out to like twenty, twenty-four episodes, something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so thirteen episodes. It's it's really, yeah, really well told, really well paced. You get so much set up in that first series, and so much of of like, you know, we keep saying cut, cutting to the core, but it really is cutting to the core of what the X Men is about. You know, this series gave me so much of of what the X-Men about that I was able to go into the Claremont stuff and just jump around in the Claremont Claremont and Byrne and, and uh Claremont and Dave Cockrum, uh, you know, all the all the different Paul Smith and John Romita, you know, just to name a few. Um 
I was able to jump around in those different eras of X-Men and understand because I had this foundational knowledge of the team, what the the themes were. It really is a great primer and it, it can't be understated, you know, how well they streamline all of that for TV and make it so easily digestible and just fun to watch. It's a really fun uh, show to watch. Just to give uh, one last honourable mention is that Apocalypse ends up being a much bigger character and I'm aware that we haven't really dealt with Apocalypse much, but towards in later seasons when it becomes a lot more about time travel and a lot more about reality bending, Apocalypse really becomes the primary villain of the show if Magneto is you know not a villain <laughs> let's say if you don't consider magneto a villain then apocalypse is really the the main villain of the show and um yeah so definitely check out some of those apocalypse episodes because oh i'm blanking on the name of the actor who plays apocalypse but that's a great performance that's really menacing that's exactly what you want from a cartoony supervillain. yeah absolutely that that apocalypse i remember used to give me just like chills when i would see him and like there is I, I I can't stress this enough. There is so much in this show that there are episodes and characters that we haven't even been able to talk about. But overall, this show is absolutely a fantastic gateway into the X-Men. It's a wonderful um, exploration into the characters and it stands the test of time. Like, yeah, the, the writing is very 90s. The animation is very 90s. But just like Josh mentioned like it really does cut at the core of what the characters are and what the X-Men ultimately represent but overall uh Josh thank you very much for coming on the show I appreciate you coming on to uh coming on to Geeksplain and talking X-Men um if our listeners want to get in touch with you if they want to follow you and you know kind of keep up to date on what's going on in the incredible adventures of uh Comic Tube Sexiest Vampire how can they find you hey, yeah you can uh, find me on YouTube that's the best place to find me is uh, panels to pixels on youtube or go to youtube.com slash panels to pixels there you can find my videos about comics and video games mostly comics this year it's uh, i'm going full comic tube uh so yeah or you can follow me on twitter at panels to pixels where i make irreverent tweets about whatever i feel like and it's generally a good time i think we have fun <laughs> we, so, yeah. do, we do have fun and honestly like josh's channel is incredible panels to pixels was one of the very first channels that i really got into when it came to comic book content some of my favorite epis or favorite videos that he's ever done are some of my favorite of all of comic tube like the the episode on the toxic masculinity of hulk is one that i always come back to and i absolutely love it like it is so good and it's full and his channel is just full of different ways of looking at different superhero media of course there are a lot of uh video game stuff on there but Josh is such a great mind for this industry, and I just I love watching his videos. So subscribe to his channel, follow him on all the socials, and that is uh, that's all I have to say about that. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. it was great fun. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And to be honest, folks... 
I was pleasantly surprised by this week's pick. This week's pick for last week, I guess, the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week is The Good Asian Number One, written by Pornsock Pichetschot with art by Alexandre Tefenki. Um, this book was great. I really, really dug it. Um, it's a hard-boiled detective noir story set in the mid-1930s during an immigration ban, and your lead character is a Chinese immigrant detective. I just, ah, I love it so much. I am so excited to continue on with this series. Makes me really excited that we're getting just all of this amazing amazing Asian content. Um, Makes my heart sing. Makes me really happy. It's a great book. Go check it out. Um, He also puts... uh, uh, Pachecho does in the back of each issue. He's said that he's going to be putting a specific, like, kind of uh, life experience story, and each variant of that of the series, each variant cover is going to be spotlighting a new Asian, um, a new Asian cover artist. So I'm very excited about this. Um, I just I'm really excited. This book was so good. It blew me away. I was thinking about it long after I finished reading it. It's awesome. Go pick it up. But that's last week's books. Let's take a look at this week's books. This week we have for you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We have ten books for you again. Two weeks in a row. Tons of good comics to check out. Let's go ahead and dive into them. Starting things off with Future State Gotham number one. This is written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver with art by Giannis Milono Giannis. Oh, every time. Every I try really hard. I do. Um, but this is continuing on the future state story in the city of Gotham. Uh, the first big uh, push of it, I th- I believe, is like a six-issue thing where it's going to be starring future state Red Hood as he hunts. Well, let's just go ahead and get into the synopsis and talk about just who he's hunting down. Hunt the Next Batman, Part 1. The event that was DC Future State continues in its own ongoing title starring the Bat Family, beginning with the epic story Hunt the Batman. Disaster strikes Gotham City and all evidence points to the next Batman. Red Hood must choose justice over his family and allies when the corrupt magistrate enlists him to bring in the new Batman dead or alive. Featuring the entire cast from the popular Future State Batman titles, this new series kicks off the next chapter in this forbidding world of tomorrow and does so in brilliant, monochromatic storytelling. This black-and-white series will showcase the brutal world that's around the corner in Future State Gotham. So that's interesting that they're doing this in black and white. Um, it's it seems like somewhat of a blend between like the Batman Black and White series and the uh, Batman Urban Legends series. So it's it's going to be interesting. I am still kind of. Um, I'm not sure how to feel about this whole future state push, whether this is this continuity, is this not continuity. So um, we'll just have to see. But I'm very interested in the story for sure. Next up, we have Justice League, Last Ride number one. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Miguel Mendonca. Mendonca. Mm, I'm sorry, that's two in a row. I apologize. Uh, this is... 
an interesting book. We're not sure exactly what this book is supposed to be entailing. We're not sure if this book is continuity. We're not sure if this book is like a prequel to Future State because they referenced a couple times that there was an event that happened in the Future State Justice League book that shattered the Justice League and more importantly, the, tr the Trinity as well. Uh, but they also talked about this maybe being a Bendis thing with his Justice League. So we don't know, but um, if nothing else, this is another Zdarsky book, and it's another Zdarsky DC book. So I'm very excited about this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Once the most powerful group in the world, the Justice League was destroyed by tragedy and time, disbanding under a veil of mistrust and anger. Now, on the eve of the universe's greatest murder trial, the League must come together one last time. But can Superman and Batman bury the past before the cosmos's greatest villains bury them? This... It sounds cool. I'm very, very interested in this. Um, I'm always down for a cool murder trial. Uh, when that's kind of brought into superhero stories, it's why some of my favorite stories happen to involve Matt Murdock, She-Hulk, and characters who kind of run in that circle. So I'm interested in this, uh, and I'll at least be picking it up for the Zadarsky of it all. Next up, we have Wonder Woman number 772. This is written by Becky Cloonan, Michael Conrad, and Jordi Belair, with art by Travis Moore and Paulina Ganeshow. And this is continuing on the uh, Diana in Valhalla story with the uh, young Diana backup. I I just, I have to be honest, I'm not really loving the young Diana backup. I don't, I don't know, it's just not clicking for me. Uh, if it's clicking for you, awesome, but I am much more invested in the main story. So uh, overall, I'm enjoying the book and I'm going to be sticking with it for sure. But let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Wonder Woman may have outsmarted the beasts of Asgard for now, but nothing has prepared her for what's to come. Diana's darkest self has emerged as a new opponent, and she'll need help from an unexpected ally whose connection to Thunder has inspired many a tale. Thor. Can this god and demigoddess duo find out what has disturbed the balance of things, or are they doomed to leave everything, including their lives, on the battlefield? Find out as this Norse narrative continues. And, in the backup story taking place during the younger days of our hero, Diana must dive deep into the depths of Themyscira's oceans to learn more about the mysterious manuscripts left to her. Little does she know what lies beneath has many teeth and is dying to meet her. Beware the mighty megalodons and their appetites. So yeah, um, it sounds interesting. Again, I'm much more invested in the main story, but I'll definitely be picking this book up regardless. Next up, we have one of the Heroes Reborn tie-ins. That's Heroes Reborn, Peter Parker, The Amazing Shutterbug number one. This is written by Mark Bernardin with art by Raphael de la Torre. And... I'm very interested in this world. I'm glad that they're doing these tie-ins for world building. Uh, I was very interested in Heroes Reborn as a book. It was definitely like number two or number three for me last week. Um, it's a lot of interesting concepts. I'm really excited to see how this happened. I'm really excited to explore more of this world and seeing it through the eyes of characters like what seems like a depowered Peter Parker who never got bit by the spider sounds really interesting. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. 
Peter Parker is the biggest Hyperion fan in the world, and he also just happens to be chummy with his favorite hero thanks to a photography gig at the Daily Bugle. Surely nothing can go wrong with his camera and him in the heart of the action, right? So that kind of is ominous, the way that they phrased that. Uh, very interested in this. Again, I'm into this whole Heroes Reborn world, so really loving that. Next up, we have American Vampire, 1976, number eight. This is written by Scott Snyder with art by Raphael Albuquerque. I believe this is the conclusion. I believe this is it. I think this is the last uh, issue from this. I might be wrong. We'll find out, obviously, when this book drops, but... I am very interested to see uh, how this all shakes out. This seems like a very much a no-win situation, uh, at least from the cliffhanger from the issue that preceded this, these events. So I'm very interested. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Part 8. Cut to their core by an act of unspeakable betrayal. The team must think fast to regroup and recover. But with two of their lives hanging by a thread and a third taken captive to be sacrificed to the beast, hope and practical solutions are in short supply. As a demon army prepares to rise from the earth on the eve of America's bicentennial celebration, an old friend of the VMS steps in to assist, and Gus gets a chance to rewrite his grim fate. In the end, their efforts will all hinge on Skinner Sweet's final decision, to either retreat and preserve what's left of his limited life, or to face the fear of his death and risk it all for Pearl and the future of humanity. So yeah, we knew it was all going to come down to Skinner Sweet. Um, I'm very excited to see what they do with this and where they go from here. Next up, we have Superman number 31, written by Phil Philip Kennedy Johnson and Sean Lewis, with art by Scott Godlewski and Sammy Bosry. This is continuing on the uh, the Army of Shadows uh story that they set up in last issue. I thought that issue was really good. I liked the uh, wordplay that they did with that. The art, I think, is something that is a big improvement over the Tim's art for me. So I am enjoying it. I'm still very curious on what uh, Johnson is planning on doing and accomplishing with this mainline Superman book, since I believe it's just going to be this. And then we jump into uh, Superman Son of Kal-El next month. No, in July. So we've got one more issue of this then. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where they go from here. I am interested. Uh, and it's Superman. So you know you've got me in for it. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The One Who Fell, Part 2, slash Tales of Metropolis. Thought to have been defeated long ago by Superman and his allies, the ancient Shadowbreed have returned in a horrifying new form, and Superman's oldest ally has been assimilated into their ranks. As John and the besieged new Thacromite leader search for the key that will help them defeat the creatures, Superman returns to the site of his first historic victory over the Shadowbreed, in an attempt to warn the Thacromites of the incoming threat. But Superman's old allies kept terrible secrets from him and both he and John are more vulnerable against the shadow breed than they know. And, in the backup story, Jimmy Olsen's plan to build a backup squad to help out his pal Superman looks like it's already falling apart, when two of his, its members, Loose Cannon and Gangbuster, would rather fight than be friends. So, 
you got my boy Jimmy back in the spotlight here. I'm excited for that. I ha- I've made it pretty clear that the Tales of Metropolis isn't really doing it for me as much as, once again, the main book. But I am here for Superman. I'm here for Jimmy Olsen. So I will be picking up this book to be sure. Next up, we have Heroes Reborn, Hyperion, and the Imperial Guard number one. This is written by Ryan Cady with art by uh, Michelle, Michelle Bandini and Stephen Byrne. And uh, this is your Superman and the Legion of Superheroes book. I am very excited about this. I really enjoyed Heroes Reborn number one, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do for Hyperion and the Imperial Guard. This is going to be the prequel for Hyperion kind of going over his his backstory in this continuity. So that's going to be really interesting. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The teenage Hyperion's cosmic quest with his Shi'ar friends nears their end, but none of the young heroes are ready to say farewell. A quick mission in the negative zone sounds like the perfect coda to a storied fellowship, but what awaits Hyperion, Gladiator, and the rest is horror and agony beyond their wildest nightmares. Also included in this issue, a special preview of the new spin-off series, The Star Jammers. So... I'm very excited about this because you know how much I love Superman and the Legion of Superheroes or Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. I love me some Hyperion and we're getting Star Jammers, which we've established in the uh, in some of the press releases is including uh, Alex and Scott if they had never been separated from Corsair. Very, very exciting stuff. Looking forward to this. This is one of my most anticipated books for sure. Next up, we have Batman Urban Legends number three. This is written by Chip Zdarsky, Brandon Thomas, and Matthew Rosenberg with art by Eddie Barrows, Ryan Benjamin, and Max Dunbar. Uh, Pretty much looks like continuing the stories so far from the first two issues which i have been really enjoying especially that red hood story by zadarsky and eddie barrows let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here the mystery around coal cash and halo deepens as batman takes a more active role investigating the man known as grifter but other villains in gotham have begun to notice what grifter is up to and they're about to attempt an assassination how long can the unlikely team up between this dynamic duo last the outsiders epic reaches its end with the return of three iconic outsiders black lightning katana and metamorpho all reunited to face down katana's mother-in-law this finale will change the makeup of the outsiders forever and set them on a new trajectory in the dc universe red hood and batman fight over what they should do with the child who is now orphaned as a result of red hood's temper while they place the child temporarily under the care of leslie tompkins she debates if she's doing the right thing is she just looking after another robin in training so overall very interested in this um like i said i've been enjoying the first two issues and this red hood uh this Red Hood story by Zadarsky and Barrows, I've absolutely loved. The art is gorgeous. The writing is fantastic. It's kind of weird to me that we have two Red Hood books going on, and technically they're supposed to be an- both anthology series. Um, but who who am I to judge when it comes to such things? But uh, next up, we have Heroes Reborn, number two. This is written by Jason Aaron with art by Ed McGinnis and Dale Keown. 
And like I said before, I really dug Heroes Reborn number one. I know that there is some stuff that is, uh, I don't know, the, the Jason Aaron Avengers run hasn't been the most well-received. I myself, I fell off it fairly early on just because it wasn't really doing it for me. But I am excited about what is going on with this Heroes Reborn event. I'm re- I'm excited about what is going to happen coming out of this Heroes Reborn event. And this number two issue is focusing on my boy Hyperion. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Invaders from the Negative Zone. Make way for the adventures of Marvel's mightiest megastar, the all-powerful Hyperion. When America's solar-powered Super Sentinel of Liberty looks to return his archenemy Victor Von Doom to the other-dimensional prison of the Negative Zone, mighty Hyperion must deal with the breakout of his most powerful enemies, such as Ultron, General Annihilus, and the Immortal Hulk, plus a special backup tale starring Blade, Earth's last living vampire. So yeah, uh, this is looking awesome. I am down for a Hyperion Hulk fight. And we are getting some, just as a side note, some really cool variant covers as well. Uh, But I am intrigued with this uh, Blade story about him figuring out what happened. Like I said, I am almost as interested to learn more about this world as I am to figure out how it came to be. So this is an easy pickup for me for sure. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is DC Festival of Heroes, the Asian Superhero Celebration number one. Now, we've talked about the creative teams in a previous episode during the news segment rattling off all of these amazing Asian creators. I am so excited for this book. All of these characters I have a deep-seated love for. We're getting some more of my boy Keenan Kong. We're getting Cassandra Kane, Katana, even Tai Pham, the new Green Lantern. Very, very excited to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Grab your favorite boba and pull up a chair to the dim sum table as we celebrate Asian Heritage Month with all your favorite Asian DC characters, old and new. Join Cassandra Kane, Katana, Green Lantern Tai Pham, The Atom, Dana Tan, aka Batman Beyond, Red Arrow, Lady Shiva, Damian Wayne, and the Al Ghul Clan, New Superman, and more as we present new tales of these characters from their thrilling history. Plus, Cheshire Cat's relationship to Cheshire is revealed as Shoes asks Selena Kyle to take her under her wing as Catgirl. And that's just the start. Very excited about this. I don't think there's a book that I'm more excited about to pick up this week. We're getting all kinds of stuff. We're getting the Monkey Prince. We're getting some stories from some amazing Asian characters. This is going to be a great time. I cannot wait to pick this book up. But... That does it for this week's Comics Countdown. A lot of books, once again, two weeks in a row. Uh, My wallet is hurting, but my heart is full. So let's go ahead and recap here. We've got Future State Gotham number one, Justice League Last Ride number one, Wonder Woman number 772, Heroes Reborn Peter Parker, The Amazing Shutterbug number one, American Vampire 1976 number eight, Superman number 31, Heroes Reborn Hyperion and the Imperial Guard number one, Batman Urban Legends number 
number three, Heroes Reborn number two, and DC Festival of Heroes, the Asian Superhero Celebration number one. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop episodes every single Wednesday, and ratings, reviews, subscriptions really helps me out, really helps the podcast out with all this podcasting algorithm stuff, really raises our stock in the podcasting space and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they want to call it. I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write whatever you want. As long as you give me that five-star rating and review, I will read it here. You can join the likes of our Mighty Nine, that being CFireND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug, Don Swanson, Brian, Mouth Dork, and Dallas Meeks. want to say a big thank you to them for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. Also, if you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag, you got a question for me, uh, you want my opinion on something, maybe a quick pitch or comic recommendations that I haven't covered on the podcast yet, you can send emails to me right in I do read everything you send to me, and I will read them here on the podcast as well and answer any questions you may have. Uh, you can write emails to geeksplain at gmail.com. Just put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here. Also, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, keep up to date with me on all the goings-on, participate in polls that decide future episodes, you can follow us on the social medias, the Instagrams and the Twitters. Follow us at Pod. that's at GeeksplainedPod. D, but that is going to do it for this week's episode. I want to say a big thank you again to Josh for coming on the podcast. If you haven't yet, check out his channel on YouTube. Subscribe. He is an incredible, incredible content creator. I know that term is like super blasé and whatever, but his videos are fantastic. Genuinely one of the best people in comic tube. Go check his stuff out. He's incredible and I just I am so fortunate to be able to finally get him on the podcast. I hope you've been enjoying X-May so far. I have been personally loving it and it seems you have been too from the feedback I've been getting. So tune in next week for part 3 where we are going to be discussing what is the most important X-Men event of all time. There's a ton to choose from. We're going to be going through each one of them and discussing what is the most important for the legacy, the history of the X-Men. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. Cannot wait to share that discussion with you. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Wear a mask, stay safe, and we will see you next time.